Have you ever wondered who's responsible for the songs you hear on the radio? Thousands upon thousands of artists pour their hearts and souls into work that most people will never know even exists. What separates the hits? Every week, I sit down with the songwriters responsible for some of the biggest songs that sweep the world to find out, how did they get there? What was their journey? My name is Gary Young, and this is The Big Break. Eric Dan is the man behind ID Labs, a Pittsburgh recording studio that developed superstars Wiz Khalifa and Mac Miller. Eric dove headfirst into music at a young age, trying his hand at various instruments and stage performances, while running multiple jobs as he slowly built up his own recording studio. He began specializing in hip-hop, and when a young Wiz Khalifa walked in the door of the studio, he saw the opportunity for a partnership. That partnership propelled his career to several gold and platinum hits, and ID Labs to being the premier recording studio in Pittsburgh. He joins us today on The Big Break to talk about how it all happened. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today, I have uh, Dan of ID ID Labs in Pittsburgh, and Eric is famous for helping shape the sound and career of Wiz Khalifa, who he gave extra studio time in exchange for Wiz helping him clean up back in the day. Started with Wiz, then... Mac Miller, you you met online and uh, and you've shaped both you know both of their careers and uh, are working on a bunch of new stuff too. So welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, I, I appreciate being here. So the show is called My Big Break, and so it's about time travel in some sense and going back in time to the beginning uh, of your career in music. And so, I mean, at what point, like? Where? How did you get started? How did you know that you wanted to to make music for a living? Well, I think I had always been really interested in music. Like I remember, um, you know, just just being like eight, nine years old, and like digging through my parents' old records and being there in my in my room listening to like old, uh, probably like doo wop forty fives, you know, and and you know, just sort of like being entranced and, but I, I never, I didn't really dive into like anything serious until I was, um, 16 and I, you know, sort of got turned on to like Jimi Hendrix and, and I picked up uh guitar and then just went nuts for the next, you know, four years or so just like really locked myself away and, um, did nothing but play guitar and was totally obsessed. And then, you know, in, in between there, I think at some point I thought, you know, I'd like to do music for a living, but I didn't, you know, exactly know how that would look. I mean, I, I wasn't, I'm not necessarily a, a natural performer by any means. You hear Jimi Hendrix for the first time or you, you, you know, and you're like, oh man, I want to play guitar. I want to play it like him. Right. Um, were your parents, so they, they had a big record collection, I'm assuming, and they were, they were into music, but did they do anything more than, um, be big fans of music? No, they didn't even have a very big collection. I mean, I think they had a, there was a box of 45s and, uh, you know, a little stack of, uh, LPs and, and, um, you know, it was like, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and like, you know, uh, 
I don't know, probably was like some Neil Diamond and stuff in there. I mean, but you know, just, just like the physical act of like putting this record on and like hearing this music and, and, um, you know, just really sucked me in to it. And, and just something that always, I, th I think we, I think my parents had a friend when I was growing up that we would, we would see from time to time and he played guitar and, you know, every once in a while we'd be at their house and he'd bust out his acoustic guitar and play things. And like, I just remember sort of being in awe that somebody could like pick this thing up and, and make music out of it, you know? So it was just something that like, it always sort of, you know, spoke to me. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and that was, that was sort of coupled with, I had a, a babysitter growing up who was the, the grandmother of, of the kids that lived across the street from me. And she played, amazing piano by ear she never had a, a lesson in her life but she would just she was way older um and she would just you know kind of sit there and and you know pick stuff up by ear and play it and it and you know just like blew my mind at you know a very young age that somebody could do that you know and that uh some combination of all that stuff like just really um got me into music and and it was just something i always enjoyed i remember like you know probably my early my early producing was like um as a kid when i when i started really getting into hip-hop <clears throat> and this was around the time that like public enemy and nwa and um you know some of those guys were coming out and i remember taking i had a, a like a boom box that you know, had a, had a record side and a playback side and <clears throat> I could mess with the tape in such a way that I could just like string together little loops. I'd take like, you know, like the intro drum break of like a slick Rick song, you know, and then I'd let that play out for, you know, a certain amount of time. And then, um, I'd cut in something else and it was like, you know, really choppy and terrible, but it was like, you know, it was just this, this cool thing. I could sort of like, you were, you were making stuff. You could make stuff. I mean, I wasn't basing it off of like anything that anyone, you know, said they had done or anything. I was just like, Oh, if I, you know, I somehow figured out if I did it this way, I could make this continuous loop of like cool parts of songs that I really liked, you know, for a minute or a minute and a half or something on this tape and yeah. then I'd like play it for my friends and they'd be like, that's great. You know? So now when, so you 16, you hear Hendrix, you get obsessed with the guitar for four or five years. Right. When were you still in guitar mode when you really got into hip hop or like, how did that, that transition happen? I think I faded out of, of hip hop a little bit, like not entirely, but I, you know, once, when I got into Hendrick, that led to like Hendrix that that led to a, like this rock rabbit hole. You know, I I just sort of like I feel like I sort of put hip hop on the back burner, and that I wasn't really I still had the stuff I liked, but I wasn't really like staying up on stuff that was coming out. You know, and then somewhere towards like the end of high school, um, I think around the time that like Wu Tang dropped it like pulled me right back in. And I think I missed like, I sort of missed an era where like it was getting a little too like slick and, and clean for my tastes. And like, you know, Wu-Tang, it was so gritty and so different um, and raw, you know, that it just like pulled me, you know, totally back into it. Um, 
And by that point, I, I had a cassette four track that I was like, you know, messing around on and making little like guitar jams and stuff. And then, you know, somewhere I, I came up on a drum machine and, and like incorporated that. And then next thing I knew, I was like making these little beats with like the cheapest keyboard in the world and my guitar in this drum machine. And that, that ultimately led to meeting uh, a guy in town that was a producer for a hip hop, a local Pittsburgh hip hop group. Uh, and he sort of invited me down to play guitar on some tracks, which led to like, oh, you're making these these beats, too. These are cool. Um, you know, why don't you just produce with me uh, for the group? You know? Oh, man. OK, that's awesome. Yeah. And then I spent, you know, pretty much the next like six years or so of my life uh, with with this group. Um, and, you know, we would play shows around Pittsburgh and, and we did a you know, a couple of little out of town dates here and there and, and put out, um, a couple of albums, but it was fun. I mean, we, we did a lot of big opening slots in Pittsburgh. So I got, you know, sort of got a taste of the stage and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, at that point, um, I was, I was fully, you know, dove in, I still had no idea, um, you know, what this was going to lead to in terms of like career or anything, but you know, I felt like I was forging some sort of path. Yeah. So, okay. So you're, so this is basically in your twenties, you're, you're doing the, what was the name of the, the group? Strict flow we were called. So for me, it, it, you know, we, we were doing, we were doing albums, you know, we like, we did a couple of albums and we were finding like any recording studio that we could in town, uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty limited just off top of like studios that are even available. And then the mm -hmm. ones that we were finding, um, you know, there just wasn't engineers that were familiar with hip hop. And a lot of them really just seemed to like, um, not be very friendly toward us because we weren't a rock band. And so that sort of like led to like, and, and this was maybe right around the time that like pro tools had, had you know, come out in a mainstream way that, um, you know, there was like smaller, um, they were selling like, a, a the Digio one interface, which was like sort of the first, you know, so we thought, you know, let's just get one of those and do this ourselves, you know? And, and I was already sort of like, you know, geeking out over, over gear and, and doing all that sort of stuff, you know, in my basement. And so, it was just this natural progression to like, all right, let's record ourselves. And then, and then as I built up my little basement studio, uh, friends of ours that, you know, were doing their own group or, uh, you know, other artists in town were like, Hey, you know, I heard the stuff that you were doing with your guys. Like, you know, let me come to the basement and I'll pay you a couple of bucks to record my album, you know? And so that was enough now, during this, during all this, did you have a day job or were you making enough to survive on, on the music or like, what were you doing? Yeah, I had, I had a day job. So I went from, uh, well, I was waiting tables for a while at the Olive Garden, shout out to them. Then, then there was an opening at, there was, there was a, uh, there was a rock band that had a, this was like, you know, when like DJs and rock bands were really cool. And I knew the DJ from this rock band and his dad happened to own like one of the, the really big local uh, music stores, like, you know, guitar, keyboard selling stores. Um, so this kid, the, his band was sort of like buzzing a little bit and he wanted, they were going to go on tour, but his dad wouldn't let him leave the shop unless he found somebody to replace him. 
So he hit okay. me up and was like, hey, I need somebody to run the, the drum DJ and lighting department at the store. <clears throat> and I'm, you know, I'm like waiting tables at the time. And I'm like, that's great. It's sort of connected to music. So like, let me do that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> which was great because then it was also like, you know, the guy would sell me gear really cheap in exchange for my paycheck, essentially. So I wasn't making any money, but I was getting gear, you know, and working it off more or less. You know, all the stuff that I compiled working there ended up being like the beginnings of of my studio. And I was also DJing. Uh, so I, I sort of had three jobs. Um, and I was, you know, I was DJing on the weekends. And as it happened, I, I came up on a really good DJ gig at a college about an hour outside of town. And it paid really well. And it was like four nights a week. And I was like, that's it. I can quit this job. You know, and this is after being at the music store for a couple of years. So I quit the music store job and the DJ gig fell apart two weeks later because a new club opened up <laughs> down the road <laughs> and everyone went there. Um, but by that point, I sort of like I, I was getting my hustle together and, you know, I felt like, all right, this is I can, you know, between DJ and here and there and like recording people in the basement, I can make a living out of this and, and build into something. So I think around um, maybe like 2004, um, I just, you know, decided that, that, you know, I was getting enough clients uh, at the studio in my basement that maybe, you know, I could start looking at uh, renting a place, you know, to put my stuff in and, and you know, uh, really call it a, a real thing. Yeah. Um, so that was what I ended up doing. And, and, you know, I found a cheap little building with a few rooms and I stuffed my gear in there and, and busted out my hammer and nails and built a, a vocal booth and, you know, um, you know, stayed there for, I think the next 10 years. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it was great. And that, that happened to be the place that, uh, initially Wiz Khalifa and then eventually Mac Miller, you know, wandered into just looking for a place to record, which then led to, um, you know, me working with them and, and, you know, sort of setting them outside of my, my clients, you know, and looking at it more as like a collaborative effort to, you know, go somewhere with what we were doing. So, so then, and that, that was ID labs, right? Mm-hmm. And um, where where's the name come from? Where'd you come up with that name? Well, so the real reason that I got out of the basement um, and moved to a, a commercial building was my girlfriend at the time, now wife of 16 years. Um, she got pregnant and she was living with me. So <clears throat> it was like, well, we're about to have this kid. So you know, maybe I should lo stop letting like random strangers in the house at all hours of the night to record their demos, you know? Um, so ID is actually my first son's initials. His name's Isaac. My last name's Dan. So, so yeah, that's, that's where the name came from because, uh, me and, and, uh, the other, one of the other guys that was involved when I opened it were just totally stumped and we just threw a yeah. bunch in a hat and it was like, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh man, that's so. So then you now you you had enough clients in the basement that making the transition to to renting renting space was relatively smooth. Or like, we got any road bumps there? Or like, what? You know, it was like 
Um, it was, it, I was flying by the seat of my pants for sure. Um, I had, you know, I had a handful of clients that, you know, was enough to make me feel like, all right, I can, I can keep the lights on. I don't know, you know, how much money I'm really going to make, but I can, I can pay the bills at the studio, which were really small. I mean, I, I, you know, found the cheapest place that, that was available, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I had like a handful of solid clients and, um, that was enough to like, sort of get me over the hump of, of, you know, starting the place. Um, but it felt pretty immediate that like when I got in there, you know, I think that there was just like a, um, I think there was a real need in this city in Pittsburgh for, you know, a studio that really focused on doing like rap and, and hip hop, because up until that point, you know, there was, there were some home studios that, that were maybe that was, you know, the focus, but there was no like bigger, more commercial places. Um, so I think we just sort of filled that need. And, and then I think the area of town we got into, you know, happened to work out that it was like really central for a lot of people. And, you know, it, it, it grew. I mean, I feel like we got busy really fast and then we just over the years, like, you know, we never got less busy. I mean, there was always times when it was like, you're kind of sitting around, like, you know, we're going to make any money this month. But for the most part, it, it just always, it always grew, you know, it was a pretty like straight line, you know, from the beginning to like, you know, where we ended up and it was really lucky in that, in that sense. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's a, you were you, but it sounds like you when you started the commercial studio space. I mean, you were default alive rather than default dead, right? Which is key. Absolutely, and I've always been really risk adverse, you know. And and I never, you know, when I start started the studio, the the temptation was there to, uh, you know, buy a ton of equipment on credit and, um, you know, just sort of outfit everything as as nicely as I could and and. I never did it. I sort of, you know, I worked with what I had and I would sort of like, you know, set little goals in terms of gear. Like, okay, if I, you know, if I get this gig, this, this job, you know, there's maybe this bigger project or something, I can take some of that money and set it aside for a new microphone or whatever, you know, whereas I, I met a lot, a lot of people in town along the way that, you know, I would talk to other studio owners and they're like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, $40,000 in debt. And I, you know, it's all, propped up against my, uh, you know, against my house, this loan that I bought all this gear with. And I'm like, you know, that's great. But what happens if you don't get any business next month? You know, <laughs> like, where are you going to live? I, I was always afraid of doing that. So I think that that helped because um, I never I didn't have that hanging over me. It was like I would just sort of like move, you know, in smaller increments um, as things came along that would allow me to afford to get to the next level, you know, gear wise or, or whatever it may be. So that, you know, I, I think that was, that was sort of key, at least for me, it felt like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause think about how, and, and this, I think about how different, different your life would be if, if you had had to close up shop before Wiz walked in the door. Right. Like, <laughs> absolutely. Um, you know, I, it's, uh, I can't even imagine what I would, uh, what I would be doing. I'd probably be waiting tables at the Olive Garden again. Is I think you'd be managing one at least. 
maybe or i'd be doing i maybe i'd be doing live sound for like bands at, at a local bar or something like yeah oh man so so then um so you you're you've got the commercial space it it's growing um and and you're default alive right and then one day Wiz walks in the door i mean do you remember the first day you walked in or so i don't i don't remember the actual first day that he walked in um i remember he came in through like sort of a friend of a friend recommended us to him and it was him and his uncle motor um they were they were working on like a, a mixtape and like a buddy of theirs uh had been to our studio and, and said oh you guys should go to you know this place id labs but i do remember and this was probably only two or three sessions in like his second or third time there i remember the moment when you know i was listening to the playback of like what he had just recorded actually i think he was still recording it he was in the in the booth uh and just you know it's sort of like smacking me right in the face that like wow this dude is you know incredibly talented and there's an opportunity the the light bulb sort of going on or or just like smacking me in the face that like wow this kid is incredibly talented and he was you know he was 16 at the time like the amount of like charisma he had in front of a microphone was like something that i really you know just had not experienced you know to that point so um i you know we finished the session and, um, you know, we, we sort of said our goodbyes. And, and as I was driving home from the studio that night, <clears throat> it just occurred to me that, like, you know, this was probably a really good opportunity to just, um, you know, build with a young artist and, and sort of, like, work in a more collaborative way as opposed to, like, you know, everything up to that point was just, like, a renting time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like just this like client relationship where, you know, I could, I would be available for whatever money per hour, you know, and I, and I thought, mm -hmm. you know, I was producing at the time, you know, and, and I thought this would, this kid is, is so good. He would just, you know, he would sound great over the tracks I'm producing. And, you know, not only would he have a demo, if we decided to work together, you know, I would have this great demo of my tracks. And that was, that was sort of the thought process. It wasn't, it really wasn't like this, you know, oh, I'm going to make this kid a star and, you know, we're going to do all these great things. It was, it was more immediate and just that, you know, I really wanted to have something. I wanted to have a CD because they still existed at the time of mm -hmm. my beats with this, like, you know, incredibly talented kid over top of it. Um, that would just sort of showcase what both of us were doing, you know? Yeah. Well, so now one, one question I got, uh, before I, cause I want to, there's, I have a lot more questions about that, but so as you're basically standing up the studio, making it work, you're still making music the whole time, right? That, that was probably, that was probably the one part about that, that we left out. Right. And, uh, yeah. And so you're, you're trying to make, make a name for yourself as a producer as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because I I had spent like that six years or whatever working exclusively with this this rap group in the city, um, and it wasn't until after that that I started producing for other people. But then once I started doing that, and and I you know I started looking at things differently, and and you know feeling like, um, you know I I really gotta uh, just uh, get a little. 
I don't know. You know, I just had to sort of expand on on what I was doing because I was making really specific tracks, you know, for this specific group of people. And then, um, you know, post that, I really wanted to just work with with anybody that, you know, was willing uh, either who could pay me or who I thought was doing something cool. Yeah. So that whole time, you know, in the early days of the studio, I was, you know, recording as well as, you know, producing either directly for somebody or just like in my spare time and, and, you know, building up a, a library of, of tracks, um, you know, all of which really came in handy once like with popped <laughs> yeah, up and, and it was like, you know, here, here's all this, here's all this music, you know, <laughs> let's. Yeah. So, so you're a couple of sessions in with Wiz and you're, and you're driving home from the studio and, and you're saying, man, this is, you know, I could, I could help this kid and he could help me. Right. Cause, cause he had the, he had the charisma, the, you know, whatever, whatever that was that you saw. Right. Um, so how did you, how did you frame it or how did you talk to him and, and motor about it? to, to get them bought in. So I, I called Wiz, um, I think, uh, either that night or the next, the next day I called him and, um, you know, I just, I said, Hey, you know, if you'd be interested in, in coming in to the studio and helping out, you know, answering phones or sweeping floors or whatever, um, you know, I'd be, I'd be down to exchange that for like studio time and for beats and we could work on a project together. Uh, and he, you know, was immediately like into it, you know? Um, I think for him, like being his age and we were like, sort of like the cool place to come record rap songs. It was like, this is, you know, I mean, as he's described it, it felt like he got a record deal. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so that was, you know, he was totally into it from the beginning and, and we started pretty immediately. Um, you know, we just, we sort of like dove right into, to making music together and, you know, have not stopped since really. Yeah. I mean, well, it's funny cause you, like you, the, the fact that you were operating this successful studio, right. Makes a, I think it's, it's, it's hard to understate the edge that gives you right because like if you if you meet somebody like like Wiz and that you're like impressed by excited to work with you've got something to trade right that can add value right because like studio time is not cheap right and so if you go well hey all the slacks you know the paper route isn't paying for for a lot of studio time right and um and so it's it's almost like the um you know, the difference between someone who has an idea for, for a product and somebody who actually happens to own a manufacturing facility to make it, or at least a prototyping facility, right? And you could do it, and you could do it fast, and you could add value. And I think know? those were all things that occurred to me. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I just realized, uh, and I don't know what sort of took me this long, but maybe it was just like really hearing an artist that I felt like, you know, had uh just crazy amounts of talent that i really wanted to work with but um you know i I, the same thing occurred to me that like hey i've got this studio and you know although you know at the time it was a it was a big deal 
to sort of commit to doing like free studio time, but uh, you know, it just, it felt worth it. And I knew that, yeah, I was in a position where, you know, I could offer, um, I could offer somebody like, you know, a complete project, you know, which would be just as useful to me as it would be to them. And the only thing I asked of him was like, you know, to come help out with the studio, but truthfully, like, you know, I think once we got going making music, we were both so into that, that I, you know, wasn't really worried about, um, I was so into the music that we were making. I just felt like, you know, this was going to go somewhere, you know? Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's almost like if you didn't, if you didn't ask for something in return for free studio time, it just seems too good to be true. Right. And it, and, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Know. And I had to, because I, you know, when I talked to him, the very first conversation, I, I told him that, you know, I, I had no intention of, you know, handing him any sort of contract or managing him or any, any sort of like official <clears throat> relationship that we would put on paper. I mean, and why not? Because I wanted it to be more of a musical relationship and I didn't want it to be looked at as like we were, you know, making this sort of like business transaction. Um, I didn't want to quantify it in those terms. I really wanted it to just be, you know, the, again, this was sort of my first time, you know, sort of like choosing an artist that I, that I wanted to, to work with, uh, in the hopes of just making great music. And I wanted that to be the focus for the relationship. I didn't want it to be the, you know, there was this like management agreement sort of like hanging over us, or there was this like, um, you know, uh, development, record deal or something i wanted it to just be like hey let's you know let's get in a room and make music together and and see you know where the chemistry might take us you know i i think that all of we, it could have led to all of those those things but that wasn't how the situation played out which um you know probably ended up being for the the betterment of the situation because i don't I don't think I had the skills and I knew it at the time, you know, to effectively manage an artist or run a record label. Um, it just wasn't something I had experience doing, you know, came on board, um, you know, and filled those roles. Um, it worked out for the better that, you know, my role was always centered on just the music and there was other people that came in to, you know, figure out, how we're going to, you know, take this, this thing that we've started and, and, you know, turn it into to something bigger from a strategic standpoint, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's, it's also another, like this whole thing. I mean, if you were $40,000 in debt, like some of those other studio owners, you would have never been able to give him free studio time. Right. And, and it's like that it's, there's some power to that, to being free. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think it's a good lesson for just, you know, working with what you have as opposed to looking at other people's situations and saying, well, this person has, you know, X, Y, and Z, and I, and I need that to be able to compete. And, and you really don't. I mean, what you need is, you know, unstoppable persistence and determination, um, you know, and to just, you know, play to your strengths, you know, know what you're good at um, and know you know, at the very least, what is working for you and, you know, use that. 
as opposed to feeling like, you know, well, you know, I got to have this thing in place or I've got to go get this thing or, you know, whatever it may be. You get on this treadmill and, and like, and you don't focus on, on the art. You focus on the, the technical specifications, right? And that's not, that's not what makes it great. It helps. But and particularly with music, because, um, you know, gear, gear never stood in the way of making good music, you know, for anyone. Um, there, there's plenty of great music that's been made, you know, with not great gear. And it still stands on its own as good music, because as long as the song's there, um, you know, you've, you've got something. And, and the medium's just the, the medium. I mean, it's it's great to have something well-produced and well-recorded, and it sounds really shiny and, and new and, and wonderful, but uh, <clears throat> it's not essential to a good song, and it's never stood in the way of a song becoming a big record. So, no, that's, I mean, it's... But I think it's easy to go down that road, you know, not just in music, but just across the board. Yeah. This, this like, oh, I need to get this. If I, until I get this object, I, I can't be successful, which is just not true. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I see that in, in any business that you can think of where, you know, people, I used to see when I started the studio, um, and, and because I think, I think because of where technology was at the time, there was a lot of people that were starting studios around town and um i would see guys like you know run and, and get a business plan and an llc um and find somebody to loan them money I, which none of, i never had any of that you know um i didn't even form an llc until i was 12 years in i think and <laughs> and that was just because my accountant said i should you know but yeah. uh you know i, I those guys they would either never get to the point where they actually opened a studio or if they did, it would just sort of close quickly because, you know, I think that they were, they were focused on making money in, you know, in a business that it, it requires more than a, a you know, a, a need or want to make money to be successful at because, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not the easiest business to make money at. And, it, and if you're just looking at it in terms of like, I want to start a business and make money, you know, you could probably think of 5,000 other businesses that would be better to start to just make money yep. and opening a recording studio, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and the other, well, the other thing too is like the LLC, the business cards, the business plan, talking to local bankers, that's all playing at business. Right, or that's that's like taking on the trappings of business. So you could give people your card. It's like, man, if you don't have anybody in the studio and you're not making anything that's that people give a shit about, then it's not real. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah. My, and that was the thing. My focus was always like on the music that we were doing, and you know, the squeezing out every bit of quality I could from you know, the rinky dink gear that I had <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that built my skills a lot, you know, just not having a lot to work with and, um, making the most of it, you know, really prepared me, uh, down the line for, you know, you, you, you could never have enough gear and, and you'll never, you know, have all the stuff that some other guy has. And it's just not <laughs> important, you know? Especially now, I mean, as technology just just gets better and better, 
um, and cheaper with, uh, you know, recording technology and music technology, you don't need much to, to do yeah. something of extreme quality. So. Yeah. So, so now you're, so you, you're working on this first project with the Wiz, right? And, and how long did it take you guys to put together that first mixtape with one another? Um, well, so I was making, at the time I decided that I wanted to make a compilation album, uh, you know, slash mixtape for the studio. So it was going to feature Wiz heavily, but it was also going to have other clients that I thought were pretty good, um, or who had done good music. And there was a few guys that, you know, would get like feature verses from like big artists when they'd come to town. And so, you know, I made sort of deals with all those guys like, Hey, let me, you know, put this song on my like compilation. Um, so we got that done like within probably the first six months of me working with him, which was, that was like the first stuff that we released that we had done together. And then I think it was maybe another year before we put his actual first mixtape together, which was Prince of the city one. Um, and by that point, like Rostrum records was involved um, <clears throat> which was good because, you know, I, I would have had no idea how to just like put the package together and, you know, distribute it to like local stores or anywhere else. And that was sort of like where they came in and handled that stuff. So probably about a year and a half in, we had the first mixtape done. And, th and then, um, so, so then, so then what happens that mixed rostrums out there pushing it? Well, so, I mean, I think we spent the next four to five years you know, finding our way in the music business, really. Um, and, you know, in that time, there was like, you know, we, you know, we put out the first mixtape and then we did um, Show and Prove, which was like his first sort of official album, which was also just like a local release with Rostrum. And, you know, I, I think by that time, like he had some local fans, um, but it certainly didn't extend beyond that. Um, but we kept putting mixtapes together. Um, and then, um, I, I think the next sort of key thing to happen was, um, we somehow, um, and this, this was all Benji's doing Benji from Rostrum. Um, he basically landed a deal with Warner brothers, uh, for Wiz and okay. and we felt like you know well this is it like this is going to happen now and yeah. um you know that that essentially led to them releasing three songs uh one of which did okay the other ones didn't really do anything and um you know they either dropped whiz or whiz left or it was like a mutual thing but you know that was it and and so you know we had like spent three or four years or whatever, you know, sort of building this thing. And then, and then we had this, this, this great big thing happen where we thought, you know, this is going to all take <laughs> off from here. Yeah. And then it just immediately yep. ended like within like six months to a year, like it was, it was <sighs> done and it was back to the drawing board. And, and that was at the time that was pretty defeating. I mean, we felt like, um, I know like for me personally, I was still putting in a lot of hours, um, you know, for no, compensation yeah. i mean there was a little bit along the way once once rostrum got involved um they would pay for a few things which was nice but um 
but you know, I, I was putting in a ton of time and, and, um, that deal fell through and it was kind of like, you know, what do we do now? It's, it's worse to have it taken away yeah. after you, after you think you have it. Than yeah. Because then you start it, right? questioning, like, what are we doing here? And like, you know, is this going to work out to Wiz's credit? Um, you know, he never, he never really batted an eye. I mean, the, the Warner deal came and went and, you know, he moved on to the next thing and it was like, you know, he was so determined to do it that that inspired me to feel like, all right, yeah, we can do this. <clears throat> and it, it was so, it was around that time that he met with uh, his current manager, Will Zombach. Um, and he met him at a show at Penn state where Will was going to school that led to, uh, you know, him and Will sort of getting together and Will having this idea of like, look, you know, we should just be playing, you should be playing shows everywhere that'll take you, whether it's like 10 people or a hundred people that show uh -huh. up, you know, let's go hard with booking shows, you know, at every little venue or college that we can. And so <clears throat> it was that in combination with like, this was like the really early days of social media uh, which Wiz, you know, immediately took to. Um, and those two things sort of came together to really start building him like a hardcore fan base. The the top-down approach of, like, Warner Brothers releasing this, this sort of quote-unquote big single, you know, like, that didn't really work out. What did work was this very grassroots approach of, you know, let's go play all these shows, get in front of everybody that we can, Wiz really trying to connect directly with an audience via uh, Twitter and YouTube at the time, you know, he was like making and editing his own videos and putting them up on YouTube. And they were just like day in the life videos, which was like something really unique for a rapper at the time. And, and, you know, people really latched onto that. Like they, you know, really dug just like seeing his everyday sort of life and like the stuff he was up to and doing. Um, and we, and we start, we started to feel the momentum grow and we put out deal or no deal, which was the album we, we did right after the Warner brothers situation fell apart. And the, and the title was obviously a reference to that. And, you know, and it did okay. Like independently, I think it hit number one on the hip hop charts on iTunes. And, and, you know, that was when we were like, okay, you know, now we've really got something like now we're really building something. This isn't just like in the planning stage anymore. Like there's actual fans latching on that want it, that want it, you yeah. know, and, and that, that will and, and whiz were able to, to find on their own, you know, they didn't need anybody, which is, that's, that's magic. All right, let's take a quick break. So we can tell you about something very cool. A few weeks ago at Royalty Exchange, we launched a new tool called Know Your Worth. Know Your Worth is a free app for songwriters, producers, and artists that allows you to get an advance in 90 seconds on your back catalog. We have paid out more than $1 million in advances since we launched this tool. So if you want to check it out, go to worth.royaltyexchange.com. That's worth.royaltyexchange.com. It's completely free, and you can find out how much you can get in an advance in a minute and a half. Now let's get back to the show.
So at that point, Wiz was probably on the road a lot, right? And was he still sort of in the in Pennsylvania, Ohio, or was he going even further afield? He was, but it was like you know those most of those shows were like regional and and you know so he was sort of like in and out, you know. So his presence was always there at the studio, you know. Um, I never went out on any of the tours or any you know if you could even call him that at the time, but I felt like he never truly left the studio. So yeah, I mean, he was still there all the time and we were still working and, um, you know, that all eventually led to a deal with Atlantic records. And, you know, that was where things like really took off that then did lead to some, you know, some times where like, you know, Wiz would be gone for like months at a time and, I would sort of be questioning like my role in things like, Oh, you know, yeah. Like now that it's really taken off and he's in the studio with Stargate and Jim Johnson and like all these big name guys, like, you know, is he still going to find a place for me? Am I still going to be able to compete with the guys he's working with, you know, to have my, my role in this and my place in this. And there was one particular moment where, um, you know, he was making, he was working on the album, which was like the Atlantic debut, which ended up being Rolling Papers. Um, he had worked with Stargate and Jim Johnson and a couple of other guys, uh, Benny Blanco. You know, I was sort of like starting to feel like, you know, man, it might be a miracle if I'm actually even on this album. And um, Wiz or Benji called me and, you know, basically said like, I'm coming back to Pittsburgh and let's work on this album. And the story sort of was that, you know, he had done all these sessions with these bigger guys that Atlantic, you know, had brought in. And then at some point during a meeting, he sort of stood up and said, look, you know, I want to go back to Pittsburgh. I want to work with my guys and finish up this album, like in my, my home territory. And he did. And I actually remember I was like on vacation with my family at the time and I got that call and, you know, drove two hours back to, to home and jumped right in the studio with Wiz. And we made uh, the first song on Rolling Papers, When I'm Gone, we made that night. And then we made the race the next night. Yeah, and it was just like great moments because, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't always like work from scratch. Like most of the time with Wiz, like I would have a beat that I made that week or that morning or last night or whatever. And I would play it and he would write a song to it, you know, but those particular songs, we started, you know, from scratch and, and we sat in the studio and Wiz was like, here's the, the vibe I'm looking for. And, you know, I would come up with some chords and he'd be like, that's cool. And, you know, and then we would just build the whole track from there. And then he would write his thing and, you know, and we would do it all. We did it all front to back you know, in those sessions with those songs. So that's like a really special time that I look back on and just like thinking of like, you know, how those songs came together and just like how organic the whole thing felt. And then I suddenly felt like, okay, I'm still a part of this and I, you know, I can still, uh, I'll, I'll continue to be a part of this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I mean, if, you know, Wiz's profile is big enough where he's got all of these, marquee producers and then he's like you know what guys i actually i gotta go back to pittsburgh yeah to finish this this isn't right you know it's, something's missing you know and that is uh 
that's magic, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it was it was a great um, it was a great feeling, you know, for me and a great moment for me. And it was a sign of thing to come. Uh, you know, he he's always um, just been, you know, very loyal to 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 me, and you know, making sure that uh, he you know hasn't he never leaves me out of whatever project that he's working on because obviously, you know, he's done some some huge songs, and he sort of has the choice to work with anybody that he that he wants to. Um, and to me, it all goes back to uh, sort of the original conversation that I had with him uh, in that, you know, when I told him that I didn't want the relationship to be about, you know, a, a contract or I didn't want it to be about some official sort of like agreement that I just wanted it to be, you know, a musical relationship, essentially, um, I feel like that stuck with him and he always felt you know, the, the sort of genuineness of that, um, you know, and that, and that has, uh, that sort of has led to him, like just having this huge amount of, of, um, gratitude and, and loyalty towards, you know, it's, it's obviously likewise, but, um, but yeah, I mean, cause there was never any question, right. It was never like, Oh, what, you know, what is Eric trying to get out of me? Right. And the only thing you were trying to get out of him was great music. Right. I think that, you know, if we had this, this like business arrangement, you know, um, I, I think that would have clouded, you know, the sort of like, um, just like the, the musical relationship between us, you know, I really do. And, um, you know, I'm just really glad that that was never the basis of our relationship you know, our working relationship. Um, and I, you know, I, and I think he feels the same, you know, he's always allowed me to, to sort of like grow, you know, as, as a mixer and a producer. Um, what have you learned from like, you know, talking about growing, you know, with him, like what, what are the things that you've learned over the years working with him? Well, I, I mean, I think that, you know, I've, I've had to learn to, um, you know, to be adaptable to my situation, you know, and, and the, the, the situation around me in that, um, I think what was important for me was to always, you know, find a way to be useful to the situation. So, you know, part of that was, <clears throat> I just had to continue getting better at what I did because I suddenly went from being like, you know, sort of a local boarding engineer or slash mixer slash producer to competing with Stargate. <laughs> yeah. With like Stargate and, and Benny Blanco and stuff, you know, to get yeah. on these albums. So that really pushed me, you know, to feel like I can be, you know, I'm, I'll never be those guys. I'll never do what they do, but I can, I can do what I do. I, I need to push myself to, you know, be the best at doing that. Um, and I, and I did, you know, and, and, um, I think, you know, even like the, the mixing thing, you know, mixing was always like something I did back in the strict flow days because we didn't have anyone else to mix our albums. But, um, you know, with, with Wiz, then it, you know, it was a skill that, you know, I was able to like, 
you know, bring to, um, to those projects, you know, and, and something that I, you know, I'm still getting better at, but, you know, I, I probably, if you had asked me like, you know, 15 years ago, if I wanted to be a, a mixer, I probably would have said, no, I, you know, just want to make music and produce, but being, being a mixer and, you know, really dedicating myself to like getting better as a mixer, um, and pushing myself and just really learning about it and, and, you know, get and, and pushing myself to be better at it has really just like led to my involvement with, um, with Wiz songs that I haven't even produced, you know? So how did everything change after Rolling Papers came out? Well, I think things always changed incrementally, you know, through it, it, it always was like sort of building in the right direction through all those years. But there was definitely a moment with like black and yellow when that hit, um, where, yeah, everything just sort of felt bigger and, you know, real all of a sudden it was like, we we weren't, you know, trying to be, or pretending to be successful. We, we were, I remember taking a trip to new Orleans, um, and, you know, and it was sort of like right after black and yellow had hit like top 10 and <clears> like, <throat> I was checking into my hotel and like, uh, it was like, you know, one of the guys working at the hotel was like singing black and yellow. It really sort of sunk in, in that moment. You know what I mean? Cause it was probably, I think it was the first time I, uh, had, you know, traveled since black and yellow blew up. So just to like see some random person in another state, like singing it, it was like, wow. So Wiz, you know, um, huge, huge star. You, you're still, you're working on probably his next thing now, I imagine. And, you know, and, um, but he's not the only superstar that, or future superstar that walked into your studio that you work with, right? So there's really two things I want to talk about, right? I want to talk about um, Big Germ because he's the man. And I want to hear about the your creative collaboration with him. And I want to hear about Mac, right? And so you, which one should we talk about first? Who should we talk about first? You pick. You're the um, boss. Well, I'm if we're gonna, here. if we're following the timeline, uh, Germ would have been the next guy to, to walk in the door. So, who is Big Germ? I mean, I know him. You know him even better than me. But uh, for people out there listening, um, yeah. So, I mean, Big Germ is a producer yeah. and, and engineer extraordinaire, uh, also from Pittsburgh, who um, basically started as an intern at ID Labs. Um, he, <clears throat> he came in to the scene, um, I guess he had been making beats on his own and working at a skate shop cause he skated and, um, he somehow got a beat to whiz. And this was like back in the mixtape days when we were working on flight school, I think. And, um, you know, whiz came in with this track. And, and I don't know how, who made the connection for them, but he came in with this track and did this song. And I, you know, I remember thinking like, man, this track is awesome. Like who did this? And, you know, he told me who it was. And then, um, I had germ come in at some point, I think, you know, probably to drop off some files or something for the track. And, uh, you know, he told me that he had been going to recording school in New York and, um, 
you know, I just sort of like found a place for him at the studio and said, you know, if you're interested in like hanging around and, and helping out, um, you know, eventually maybe jumping into some sessions, um, you know, which he was totally into that just grew into like it's another huge benefit of the studio, right? You got something to offer everybody that's got talent that comes in, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, that it sort of grew from there into like, just, you know, like a production partnership, you know, where we just begin producing uh, everything together, uh, everything. And, um, you know, germ is potentially more of a, of a gear nerd than I am, which is incredible because I'm, <laughs> I'm fully geeked out with stuff, but, uh, you know, he, uh, he was really into it too. And I, and I think that, you know, that was something that like, you know, bonded us early on was just like our ability to like sit and geek out over like new gear and, uh, technical stuff, you know? So, so then, so germs in, in your world and then how does Mac show up? Like what, where, at what point does Mac enter the stage? Right around maybe, maybe a year into germ being at the studio. Um, Mac, started coming to record at the studio and at the time i was like pretty well invested into whiz stuff germ started working with him you know more and more i was like hearing the stuff that they were doing and you know i just i just sort of heard the same thing that i did with whiz in terms of like you know just the amount of like charisma and, and like personality and talent that that he had and, and by that point him and germ were already um, you know, a handful of tracks in, um, working with each other. Um, but you know, I, I didn't, it wasn't quite the same thing where I like called Mac up, but, um, you know, I, I just started to work with him more and more and, you know, that ultimately led to like, um, Benji from Rostrum again, getting involved and you know us working more, more and more together and just you know he things happened really quickly uh with mac it was like you know wiz had okay. sort of like laid this road down in front of us you know um and mac was able to um you know just just sort of like jump into the lane and and um, you know, quickly get things rolling and, you know, it felt like lightning striking twice, but it was a, it was a different situation yeah. because there wasn't a major label involved. Um, you know, so in, in a lot of ways we had like more sort of like control and freedom, uh, to do things and, you know, really, it led to, um, you know, probably the, just some of the, like the most amazing, like musical moments of my life, you know, with him, because, um, not only was like, he just, you know, a, a tremendous person to know, you know, he was so willing musically to sort of go anywhere any any sort of like idea or experiment that popped into our minds like he was totally on board 
and 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 just had like an infectious enough personality where like you know he just made you immediately like comfortable you know being yourself and being open creatively and musically yeah it just led to like a, a an amazing what are there any of those those musical moments that really stand out that are imprinted on your mind man there's there's so many um you know, like I mentioned with uh, with Wiz, you know how it's it's only been a handful of times that we worked like sort of from scratch. You know, where like I would be building the track with him in the same room, but with mm-hmm. Mac, like he never wanted to work any other way. You know, he always wanted uh, to be interesting. Yeah, okay. he always wanted to be involved in the in that process um, because you know he was a producer himself, and and you know he could play instruments. And he just loved being in a room making music more than anything else in life. He, uh, I remember when he first started making money, he bought all these like keyboards and electronic drums and guitars and like all this gear. And we brought it all back to the studio, um, you know, and just like went nuts, uh, hooking all this stuff up and like playing like, you know, just like anything on everything. It was like, oh, this song needs a guitar solo. Like, let's put a, you know, a tom roll on this track, you know, and like, <laughs> and just like, just sort of going nuts, man. But like, we had a blast, you know, he was, he was so into that side of it, like beyond just like being a rapper, like he was so into like the music side of things, you know, that just like continued, um, you know, throughout his, his whole career, like, and you guys could geek out together about gear. Yeah, you're the third the third gearhead in the crew. Totally. I mean, he was more into like instruments than he was like mic preamps and stuff. You know, I just remember like every time he would get like a new keyboard or something, he'd call me up from like his place in LA, like, Oh, I just got a, you know, Wurlitzer and I'm going nuts, you know, uh writing on this thing or like, you know, if he got like a cool new guitar or something, he'd like you know, FaceTime me and, you know, rip a solo to, to show me, show off a new guitar that he got, you know? I mean, it sounds like, so, uh, so some of it was the fact that there was no label involved, but some of it was just the kind of the, the, the expanse of his, of his mind and like the curiosity, it sounds like, and like the willingness to just try anything to see what it will see what happened. Right. Absolutely. I mean, he, you know, he had like a really, a really broad taste in music, you know, and just, just really, you know, understood like the mechanics of, you know, playing different instruments and like, you know, we would, we would like sit there and like geek out on like, I have like a really big record collection, you know, and I would like pull out like, you know, weird old jazz records or something and like you know and be like listen to this bass part you know and he'd like sit there and geek out with me on it you know in fact he would like every time i do that and he would reach out to like i remember one time i like i I put on this youtube video of uh jeff beck because i we were talking about guitars and something had occurred to me and i was like oh you should watch this thing where you know jeff beck like you know he does this like finger picking thing and it's like he makes these crazy tones and um we were watching it and uh jeff beck's bass player at the time is this really young girl 
Um, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, but it, it looks like Tal Wilkenfeld, I think. She's a phenomenal bass player. Um, and hopefully she never hears this, so she doesn't know how much I just butchered her name. But we watched <laughs> that video, and Mac was like, wow, like she's so incredible. And I remember him jumping on Twitter and, you know, following her and immediately DMing her like, hey, you want to work on something? Um, and I don't think they ever got a chance to, but she did get back to him and seemed really excited about it. So we would have all these moments like that or like we'd like geek out over a bass player or something, you know, and um, we really always sort of like bonded on that that level. But he was, you know, he was a blast to work with in the studio. I mean, you know, we, we developed like, you know, a really deep friendship over the years. But um, in terms of like a musical relationship, um, you know, he was, he was a lot of fun. And that's, that's echoed by every person I've ever talked to that's been in the studio with him. He just brought such an incredible energy to what he did. Yeah. You were spending a lot of time working on the Wiz stuff. And then as Mac is developing and him and Germ, then you're getting more involved in that. I mean, was it ever difficult to balance between the two? Not at all. I mean, I, I think that there was a subtle competition it's sometimes not so subtle between the two of them. Um, okay. You know, I couldn't get too excited about a whiz project in front of Mac and vice versa because, you know, they were both on the same indie label and uh, surely they were vying for, you know, time and attention from Rostrum. It just, it just created this situation where they both knew that I worked with both of them, you know, and, and it was never a problem, but there, I couldn't, I couldn't like, you know, pull up on Wiz and, and say like, Oh man, I'm so stoked about this Mac record. And I couldn't do that, you know, with Mac either. Cause they'd just be like, hmm. <laughs> you know, Aria, let's, oh. let's talk about my record. You know? Yeah. It's like, it's like talking about your ex-girlfriend with your wife, you know, just not, not, not always the smartest choice. Exactly. <laughs> If you could go back in time 20 years and give yourself some advice from where you are now, what would you tell? What would you tell the younger Eric? I would probably tell myself not to stress out too much about making the rent next month because uh, even to this day, you know, uh, when I finish a project and I'm waiting for the next one to come down the pipe, I sit there and think like, well, maybe this is the last project I'll ever do. And why did, I've heard that so many times. Why, what do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think that that's inherent to anybody that runs their own business foremost. I mean, I think that it's, you constantly feel like you're, you know, on the edge of, of the cliff and, you know, eventually someone's just going to push you off or you're going to fall because, you know, you're, you're essentially the the master of your own destiny in that situation and you're um you know you're the only one responsible for making sure that you have a paycheck coming at the end of the month i think it's easy to feel like it's just gonna the rug's gonna get pulled out from under you i mean i, I think even especially once you become successful or have some success you know with whatever business it is but maybe particularly in like the the creative uh, industries. Um, because, you know, if you're doing something that you love and you're managing to make a living at it, I think it's 
just natural to look at it and say, well, there's no way that this can last. You know, there's no way that the universe is going to let me continue to do this thing that I love and it's going to pay for, you know, my, my life as I know it. And, um, you just naturally feel like it's gonna, it's gonna end and, you know, and it always does in some way or another, you know? Um, but I think that goes back to just like being adaptable, um, you know, and, and just, just working with, with what you, what you have, you know, and, and having a, a little bit of foresight, um, with, with where you're at and what, you know, what you're doing and what you can do better. And, you know, my, my focus has always changed, you know, through the years in terms of like, you know, my focusing on being a producer or my focusing on being a mixer, um, you know, the studio itself and it being like a brick and mortar business. Um, you know, all of, all of those things exist as sort of a, a safeguard for me to have different avenues to make a living at music, you know, and if any one of them sort of like gives out and like nobody ever wants another beat for me, Dan, like I can probably continue to mix records. And, you know, if nobody wants me to mix their records, like, you know, I can record people or, um, you know, have kids record people and, um, <clears throat> you know, that's why it's all there. I mean, it'd be nice to like, you know, just sort of like focus on one thing all the time and, you know, be totally immersed in it, but it's not the reality I think of, of running a, your own business. Um, and you, you've got to be a little more versatile than that. So that's, that's kept some of that anxiety away. Just, just knowing that like, okay, I have this thing and I have that thing. Um, and I've recently gotten into managing other producers. Um, and again, that's just sort of like a look forward, but I've, I have friends that like run an HVAC company and they love what they do, you know, like they really enjoy their job and they feel the same way. It's like, they wake up every day feeling like, you know, maybe this is the day that no one's going to call me to come fix their air conditioner anymore, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So I think it's just inherent to uh, running your own business, you know? Yeah. Now, aside from establishing a bunch of different ways to make money making music, what else do you, what else do you think people should do to, to basically thumb their nose at the universe that wants to take away their ability to make, to do things they love and get paid for it. What else do you like? What, what else, what other advice would you give to somebody out there? Well, I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, I think it's, you need to be realistic about, um, you know, what you're contributing, uh, to the, you know, to the yeah. music world and what your strengths are and, and, you know, really, really playing to those, but also just making sure that, um, you know, you're, you're diversifying the hustle at the end of the day, because, you know, if you get into music and you're, you know, a, a songwriter, um, you know, that's great. That's what you should mainly focus on is, is writing great songs, but you know, you, probably would do well to go out and explore 
you know, how publishing works and how publishing companies work. Um, so that maybe you get in a position someday where, you know, you can open your own publishing company and start signing other writers and, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, I, I just like to, to feel like I'm always working towards something or doing something, you know, I never, I never truly have a day where I'm just like sitting around, um, you know, twiddling my thumbs, waiting for the, the phone to ring. You know, if, if I have a day where I don't have anything going on and, you know, there's nothing that I'm doing the, that's, you know, directly making me money. Um, you know, that's probably the day that, that I'm going to either, you know, strategize for tomorrow or I'm going to go, you know, organize my sample folder or clean the bathroom at the studio or, you know, just, just something to keep, you know, keep momentum in my life, you know, so I'm not sitting around like sort of, you know, depressed by the, the idea that like, you know, I'm not getting any business today or I'm not doing something that's putting money in my pocket today. Yeah. I think momentum is the, the most precious intangible resource in business and you don't realize it until you lose it and you got to do everything to not lose it. Right. It's really easy to get stagnant and, you know, uh, particularly in, in like the music industry or any, you know, creative field to lose inspiration. Uh, and then you start sort of wondering what you're doing any of it for. And I still have those days. I mean, I have days where I just sit here like, you know, totally uninspired. I don't know who I'm making music for, who would even want to listen to the music I'm making and what am I doing? You know, and I think with time and experience, I've learned that like, you know, those days will never go away completely. I'm always going to have them. Uh, the trick is when I have those days, focus on something else, focus on taking one of my guitars and, and setting it up and cleaning it really good. And, you know, or pulling out a piece of gear that, you know, has been acting weird and fixing it or, you know, whatever it is that, you know, keeps me feeling like I'm moving forward because then, you know, I'll wake up the next day and feel like I accomplished something the day before, even if it wasn't like writing an amazing song or something or making an incredible beat, I did something and I can, I can feel that sense of accomplishment and use that to then push me, you know, to the next accomplishment. Um, inspiration and, and, you know, momentum and motivation, like that's, that's the key stuff for me personally. It's, you know, it's keeping myself busy. That is key to, to that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, me you know, motion beats meditation. Often. Yeah. What's the, uh, what's the most common piece of non-musical advice you give to the producers you manage? You know, just to have patience is, is probably the biggest one <clears throat> because, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tough business and, and for, you know, the vast, vast majority of us in it, it's, it's a slow grind and you really never know when your moment is going to happen. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, so just not getting too ahead of yourself and not like beating yourself up too much if things don't work out. I didn't have any success in this industry um, until I was like in my early 30s. And, you know, when you look at the the age of like, especially with producers now, like, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's kids that get on when they're like 17 and they have a big record. Um, it was a little different when I was coming up because, you know, the, the technology to make music, uh, was different, you know, so the entry point is a lot lower now and cheaper, Mm. but, um, you know, I, it took me, you know, doing this for like 10 years to see any success whatsoever. Um, and luckily I just had the patience to stick with it, you know, and, and, and the discipline, you know, patience and the discipline. Right. Absolutely. And, and just sort of the, like just the rugged determination because, um, you know, I, I had a young family. I mean, there was a lot of pressure, you know, to maybe stop making music and go, you know, sort of find the regular job. Even if it was, you know, a crappy paycheck, it was something maybe that was part of that was just stubbornness, you know, but a lot of it was, was a lot of it was patience. A lot of it was like just my willingness to see what would happen next and to sort of wait for that moment. And, you know, I was lucky enough that that moment came, but, uh, that's, that's definitely something that I try to impress on, on anybody that I'm working with. That's more in a beginning stage is, you know, just to be patient with, uh, with this and, you know, your, your moment will happen eventually. And if you're patient and aware enough, then you'll, you know, you'll know it when it's happening. Yeah. Oh man. That seems like a great, great place to, to end. That is very, very useful advice. I mean, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but there's really like three big takeaways that I got from you. Okay. So the first is that almost like the, the, you have to be relentless, but at the same time you have to be patient just kind of an interesting like the willingness to just keep going right the second is you got to be disciplined with um your mental game right which might mean yesterday you wrote a mo- an amazing song today you're you're cleaning your guitars you got to be disciplined with your with your money so that you don't you don't end up blowing up before that opportunity shows up right because you, you got to stay alive in the game long enough yeah and and you know since the since i'm sure a lot of people listening to this um you know are writers and and uh involved in the publishing world um you know when you get that that big publishing advance um you know maybe hang on to some of it don't 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 feel the need to, to, to spend it all off top because it could be a while before the next one so just in case it is you know, make sure you've, you've put some of that in a good place. Yep. That makes a ton of sense. Eric, you're the man. Appreciate it so much. No problem, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. And, uh, you know, obviously I appreciate any chance to, uh, talk for hours. So
Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Big Break. You can connect with Eric and ID Labs on social media by checking out his pages on our show notes. And to get a weekly dose of The Big Break in your podcast feed, subscribe and look for a new episode every Tuesday morning. Next week, John Chisholm comes on the show. He is a Christian music producer based out of Nashville whose journey through the music industry has taken him all over the world to some of the most unlikely places, and he gives us a first-hand look at what it feels like to become a surprise celebrity. Don't miss that and more every week on The Big Break. Big Break.